coming up on the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. We both knew Lloyd. Remember that? I remember Lloyd. He was tall, too. Not as tall as I am. <laughs> and Rare. now let's do lunch with Aditi Roy. <laughs> you make it sound so much cooler. <laughs> what more. we just did with this wine, mm-hmm. <laughs> I he just did with re- Dorito. He did. The second day at ABC News, I sat across from Diane Sawyer. She introduced me to the World News audience at the end of my story. How and why and basically what the fuck is up with Fox? <laughs> And now, the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The cell phones have been silenced. The wine is poured into some very interesting shaped glasses, which we're going to talk about. And just like that, the podcast begins. The Tall Mike Wine Podcast. The wine podcast that's not all about wine. The wine podcast like no other. My name is Mike Stone. People call me Tall Mike because I'm tall. And wine is my fixation, my fascination. Welcome to the podcast, heard in 37 countries on six continents, and in 44 is these United States and the nation's capital, coast to coast from Berkeley, California, to Fishers, Indiana, from Hoboken, New Jersey, to McLean, Virginia, even Warren, Michigan has found the podcast. And I thank you. Have you given us a rating on Apple Podcasts? I think you should. For me, for the love of wine and all the best things in life. And if you're feeling prolific, then leave a review too. They tell me it helps. A lot. You can also rate us on Spotify. That's a new feature. And this podcast is not yet rated on Spotify. FYI, apparently you have to get enough ratings before they'll actually give you the rating. It's conversation time, and I'll introduce my guest for episode 26 in a moment. But first, I want to thank her for hosting this episode in her home. I have road-tripped it down to San Jose, California. The weather here in Northern California has been amazing, and today was a lovely day for a drive. It would seem we have emerged from our not-very-long winter's nap into beautiful springtime weather, leaving many people worried and wondering about the lack of rain. We did get some rain this winter, but... Not a lot. Now, my guest, she is a former television news correspondent who now hosts a podcast. She has worked for such well-known news organizations as ABC News and CNBC. But back when she was just getting started, she did a tour as a local reporter in Spokane, Washington, where our paths crossed. And I'm not sure if we've actually seen each other since then. So it's time to get caught up. Welcome to the podcast, Aditi Roy. Hello, friend. Hello. It's so nice to see you after all these years. It's surreal, isn't it? When you go two decades, maybe, aging both of us without seeing someone. But people slag on social media, and it's really only going to happen because we found each other on social media. That's true. Like, wow, Aditi's in the Bay Area. I'm in the Bay Area. Hey, once in a while, I'd comment, you'd comment, and then... The podcast came along, and I'm like, okay, who am I going to get on the podcast? And then you started a podcast with some other people, which we're going to talk about in a second. I'm like, okay, now she's got a podcast. We have to talk. Love it. Spokane was such a long time ago. I know. Many, many miles ago and jobs ago. Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how many jobs I've had since (laughs) I was in Spokane because it's the restaurant business. Sure. Probably more (laughs) than I've had. But let me see if my memory is correct. You are at... KHQ. You got it. The NBC station. When did you get there? It was 2000 to 2002. 
2000 to 2002. Okay. And me roll back the clock to yeah. then and see if you can remember sitting on the front porch yes. of a cool old apartment building in Brown's Edition. Brown's Edition. I remember that. The apartment was Lloyd's apartment. We both knew Lloyd. Remember that? I remember Lloyd. He was tall too. Yes. Not as tall as I am. <laughs> I somehow seem to remember I'd been at a tasting where there was one of those really big bottles open and they gave it to me at the end of the tasting with all this wine still left in it. It was one of those, you know, tall the magnums or something uh, like a three liters, which oh, is like wow. a huge bottle. You're carrying it around and it's awkward. But I brought it to Lloyd's house. There was a bunch of people, but that's really where my memory ends. But guess what? I've stayed in touch with Lloyd via the socials through the years. And I haven't. Okay. This is the first time I'm hearing about Lloyd since our email correspondence <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. All right. So he's hopped around. D.C., Los Angeles. Now he lives in the Central Valley of California. Wow. Here's the fun part. He's in Paso Robles. <gasps> Great And on the place. most previous edition of the podcast, I tasted and talked about a wine from Paso. And of course, I do the posting on Instagram. And Lloyd commented about the winery being one of his faves, being a big supporter of the arts, and Lloyd works in arts administration down there. And I commented back to Lloyd that my next guest would be someone he knew. How fun! So Lloyd's been waiting for the big reveal. Here it is, Lloyd. I've got a Didi right here. (laughs) I hope it's not (laughs) anticlimactic. Hi, Lloyd. We'll have to make it to Paso. That's one of our places that we really want to go to and spend more time in. It's definitely on the California wine map, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's talk about your podcast. Sure. Full Stack Food. Mm -hmm. Who is involved? What's it all about? My co-host is Brett Brohm. He is the managing director of the Farm to Fork Accelerator of Techstars, which is a mouthful. Whoa. Yeah. So basically- I like Farm to Forkful. That's cool. I know. That's the important part because it's all about food and food tech. Stepping back a little bit, I have managed to, throughout much, if not most of my television career- incorporate food or agriculture. Before Spokane, I was in Lincoln, Nebraska. Agriculture stories, talking to farmers was a pretty big part of the job. And I loved it, actually. And it's a way of life. It's not a job, obviously. It is a way of life. And so after Spokane, Washington, I was in Philadelphia for many years. And during that time, I had a food segment, which was so much fun. It was called Let's Do Lunch. I went and told stories of the mom and pop restaurants. And Philly has an amazing food scene. So I would cook with their favorite dish with them and then tell the story of the place. It was really popular among viewers. And I love food. So it was just it was one of the favorite, my favorite things I've ever done in my and career. And now let's do lunch with the <laughs> Didi Roy. You make it sound so much cooler. <laughs> and after that, I, when I was at CNBC, I also covered agriculture, but also ag tech. Food tech ended up becoming a big part of my beat there. So think Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat and those types of companies. I really fell in love with telling the early stage stories, which is these new companies, startups, focusing on food and the food system, not just on the consumer side, but the way food is grown, the way it's distributed and supplied, anything involving the intersection of food and technology. So it can even include things like delivery, like DoorDash was one of the companies that I covered a lot. I just fell in love with the space and I already have a love for food, but the innovation happening, it was so cool. The entrepreneurs and the founders, their stories, so many of them are so mission driven. And it was just really fulfilling to be able to tell their stories to a mass market audience. 
When I left CNBC, I found myself really wanting to continue to tell those stories and be part of that ecosystem. And I realized, you know, I had some friends who do podcasting and obviously podcasting the last few years has exploded. I thought to myself, gosh, wouldn't it be cool to do a podcast that balances that line between food tech, but also just food and kind of where the audience is not just people who are into technology and food technology, but people who just love food, which is pretty much everyone. Right. And I I know some people who don't love food. Okay. Well, (laughs) I feel bad for them. It kind of took shape because I was talking to a lot of people in food tech. One of those people that I came across was Brett. And we have a mutual friend who introduced us and the premise of the introduction was just to talk to each other about maybe ways that I can contribute in this ecosystem. And I was thinking about consulting at that point, doing content. And he connected me with Stephanie Rich, who's our third person on our podcast. She and I were talking about various things. And at the very end, I happened to just mention almost as an aside that, oh, by the way, I think there's an opportunity to do a really great food tech podcast that walks that line between the technology part of it, but also can appeal to a more general audience. And she said, well, if you want to do a podcast. We are all in with you. It just kind of naturally unfolded and they've been wonderful to work with. We just is this great collaboration. Brett and I really play off each other really well. He is the funny guy. He's I mean, he's obviously super smart. He keeps track of all of the innovative companies in this space. And I'm a curious person who asks a lot of questions and has intellectual curiosity. So it works really well. And we have silly things too that we talk about like our favorite type of Doritos or right. our favorite Girl Scout cookies. And yes, like I've that. listened to the podcast a couple of times. <laughs> There's this is leads into the next thing I want to ask you about. It's a it's a language thing. Mm-hmm. You know, once in a while certain businesses come up with their own jargon. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that you just said it a moment ago yeah. Using the word space in a unique way, mm-hmm. the food space, the podcasting space. Yeah. I'm all of a sudden noticing people using this <laughs> form of the word space. And it's weird to me, to me anyway. Yeah. It is such a part of our vernacular now, right? But Everyone did you notice it. it just sort of happened overnight? It did. And I think for me, I started using it more when I was in business reporting mm-hmm. because you talk a lot about the space or whatever. It's always struck me as odd. Mm-hmm. And it's only been the last couple of years that people yeah. have started really using that word. I think I like how short it is and mm-hmm. S, I love S words. So I don't know. It's some, something elegant about it. And then it'll become overused and then we'll move on to another word, right? That's yeah, how it works. Exactly. We're going to taste the first wine now. This is what we do on the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. We taste wine. We talk about it. But before we taste the wine, I want to present you with your very own set of Tall Mike Wine Podcast coasters. Oh, cool. Oh, this is a great branding technique. (laughs) Coasters. Those are coasters with my artwork on them. I love it. I love your artwork. Picture of me with my face in a wine glass. (laughs) And I want you to have those for your home use. Thank you. I love it. The wine glasses we're drinking out of today are new. I just purchased them, and I want to say this is not an endorsement. I have not been given these glasses for the endorsement on the show. I was fascinated by them. I started seeing this new shape wine glass on the socials with some wine people that I follow. Like They all of a sudden had these glasses in their hand. I'm like, what are those? So I reached out to one of them and said, what are those? And they said, oh, these are the new Riedel Wine Wings glasses. And what they are, and I'm going I'm to take pictures of everything. Remind me to take pictures, okay? Because okay. I forget. <laughs> I'm going to take pictures of everything, and they'll be up on the Instagram. But they are these really wide, 
glasses with a flat bottom. I can't really describe the shape. Do you have well, a I word can't. to describe the shape of this glass? Like Other than it, wings, which is what they use. So right. I don't know. I don't actually. I don't even really see the wings. Yeah. Though. I'm like, what is the wing? I don't There's get like it. a slight curvature out at the bottom. Right. It's, I like the flat though. It's flat on the bottom, which is mm-hmm. cool. You pour a tiny little bit of wine in the glass mm-hmm. and it really, you get all that surface area on yeah. the glass, which of course then starts to aerate the wine. This is intended to be like a super aerating glass is mm-hmm. what it is. Now, the wine we are tasting right now is a wine that comes from Sonoma, the winery where I work. It's been a while since we've recorded the podcast at Nicholson Ranch, but I brought one of the uh, really limited bottlings today. This is a Pinot Noir called Dry Farmed from 2016. So Nicholson Ranch, all the wine is made from grapes that we grow on the property. The property is only 40 acres. Wow. It's a 31-acre vineyard, 14 acres of Pinot. So we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So this is only made in about 150 cases. This is one of our cool. reserves that is made primarily for the wine club. It's accessible for people if you know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so give it a smell. Give it a sure. taste. What do you think? The smell is wonderful. I know I'm not a wine connoisseur, but we do enjoy our wine. Just spit out the first couple of words that you think of though, when you <laughs> smell the wine. Okay. <laughs> Break it down. I'm always really bad at that. This is why I like to draw it out of people <laughs> who don't just go right to the script. Because if I'm sitting here with a wine person, they're going to say, oh, yeah. I get cherry, I get black yeah. cherry, I get some cola, I get uh, red flowers, like red berries. Blackberries? Okay, blackberries. There you go. See? That's, yeah, that's what I thought of. It's definitely in there. Really? But there's also a real nice earthy element to it and yeah. almost a woodsy element to mm-hmm. it. This wine spends two years in French oak. Most of the barrels are new barrels. So for a Pinot, to be exposed to that much new oak for that long is pretty impressive. And I it like makes this earthier. wine really, it has a lot of cedar to it. Mm-hmm. Get a lot of almost like violets on the nose. Yeah. And then uh, and then taste it. That's what we do next. Oh. It's nice, right? Yeah. It's got a little bit of that spice in the middle, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. finishes really smoothly. And you can still feel it. Mm-hmm. It's still there. Yeah. My boss, Deepak, he's big on finish. You'll taste wine with him, mm-hmm. wine that he didn't make, and he'll be like, this is good, but there's no finish. <laughs> like you The gave finish? Him- because that's a lasting impression, right? That's the last thing you remember. It just should linger and do a mm-hmm. couple of things. It should get you ready to take the bite of the delicious food you're tasting mm-hmm. and or eating, or it should get you ready for that next sip of wine. And you notice right now your mouth maybe is slightly watering, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's the acidity, the lingering oh. acidity in the wine. It's like the bubbles in soda pop. Imagine drinking Coca-Cola with no bubbles. Okay, this is like sugary water that tastes yeah. like... But if there was no fizz, Mm -hmm. would it be that interesting? No. No. So acidity in wine is what makes that, what kind of replaces that in in soda pop. It's so interesting because one of our conversations was with Matt Barnard, who is the co-founder of Plenty, which is a vertical farms company. They really optimize for taste in their greens. And so he's learned a lot from sensory scientists. And one of the things he was talking about was in everything you eat, there's usually a beginning, middle and end. And so he kind of broke it down for even a Dorito, how there's a sweetness to the finish. And I had no idea until I had it. And that's what gets you back for What more. we just did with this wine, <laughs> he did with re- Doritos. He did, which is completely different, obviously. I know some people who could probably do that. With but it's just so interesting because the finish is important because it's what gets you to go back right, and reach you, for the same thing. Well, with Doritos, they want you to just eat the whole bag in one sitting. I know. And you can't stop. And, yeah. and it's true. You can't. Mm-hmm. 
wine we call the very first part. Typically, you call that the attack. When it hits your mouth, how does it feel? Yeah. And then the middle is called the mid-palate. And then after you've swallowed it or spit it out, if you're at a professional tasting, how does your mouth react? What's the finish? And Deepak is big on the finish. Yeah. And I think that's why he puts his pinots in oak for longer than most people do with pinot. The finish is something that was very notable. Is He'll be very happy to hear that. Uh, yeah. I uh, And again, I'm not a connoisseur, <laughs> but the fact that that was, it left an impression mm-hmm. it was definitely notable. We're going to taste another wine in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But first, I want you to tell me about uh, your early days growing up. <laughs> Where? Who? Tell me about your family. So my parents moved from India. My dad came in the late 60s. He went to school. He finished up school in Canada and then he moved to New York. He and my mom were just basically starting out when they moved to New York. I they was were, born in New they York. They were married in India? They were married in India, but then they moved here. He was actually okay. already in North America, went back, they got married, and then they came back out here. So I was born in New York. In Flushing Meadows Hospital. Yeah, we lived in Queens and lived in New York and North Jersey until I was seven. Mm -hmm. By then, it was my parents and me and my brother. And we moved out to Irvine, California. So I grew up in Orange County. I did not know that. Yeah. And then from there, I went to college in Northern California. So this is actually my second go around living in Northern California. Where did you go to college? Went to Berkeley, go Bears. And I heard you mention at the beginning of the podcast. Yes. Berkeley was the first city, so I thought, you know, it's meant to be. I There are people listening in Berkeley. I love Berkeley. (laughs) In fact, I worked, I was news director of the campus radio station there, KALX-FM. K-A-L-X. K-A-L-X-FM, 90.7 FM. That is awesome. Yeah. So before that, though, when did young Aditi decide that news was cool? Who were your inspirations? And when, at what age did you start? thinking about this. I am someone, we grew up in a very typical evening news family. We sat at the dinner table and we had the evening news on. So I grew up with the big three, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I was really, really little, Walter Cronkite, but Dan Rather. You do remember Walter Cronkite. I do. I was thinking about that because I'm writing my notes thinking, okay, I'm going to ask Aditi who her inspirations were. And I'm thinking (laughs) Cronkite and Jennings and and Ted Koppel. I love Ted Koppel. I had the Nightline book. I mean, just the writing and the words. And growing up, I love to read. I love to learn about things. I wanted some aspect of public service where I felt like I was teaching people, informing people, delivering information. All of those things came together in the form of journalism. I was in ninth grade when it all kind of came to me and I had this epiphany with this is what I wanted to do. And television more so than print because it was in my house all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the people that I look up, looked up to, right. we were huge consumers. I mean, my parents, they still get a paper news, an actual hard copy mm-hmm. newspaper delivered to their homes. But there, there's just a lot of news consumed, whether it was newspapers, magazines, mm-hmm. and television. I thought that creatively you could do so much more with television by marrying the words with the pictures and things like that. So that's how it it all came about. And then you got into TV news Mm -hmm. and then you made it into the network level. (laughs) Did you get to meet some of these people that you were inspired by and work alongside of them? The second day of my job at ABC News, I sat across from Diane Sawyer and she introduced me as she does to all the new reporters as she did to the world news audience at the end of my story, I was more nervous talking and being face to face with Diane Sawyer 
than I was being on national be? television. How could you not be? And it's different. It was because she's such an icon and mm-hmm. she really is like lived up to everything that I imagined and all the amazing qualities that I assigned to her. She really did. She was wonderful. Did you get to meet Ted? I, you know what? I haven't. I've spoken to his producer over the phone one time, Tom Batag, who was lovely. And I still haven't. I follow Andrea Koppel on LinkedIn. I always enjoy reading. She seems very accessible. But Is that his His daughter, his who daughter? was a, a very amazing correspondent for CNN. She was a State Department correspondent. Oh, okay. So, yeah, she okay. had her long, illustrious career as well. And then she's moved on to her new chapter. Oh, I don't watch a lot of television at all now. And I want to talk about what you were talking about, being a kid and having the big three. Yeah. Same thing for me. I was uh, fascinated with the news. I waited every day. My small town paper came in the afternoon. So I remember being home from school and being like, is the paper here yet? Mm-hmm. Is the paper here yet? And walking out to the end of the driveway and checking the box. And the evening news, waiting for that to come on because it was, that was it. Three networks. Yeah. That was all we had. One newscast mm-hmm. every night. People considered that to be the news. Then cable came along. We got CNN, 24-hour news. But still, I think most people considered that to be the news. Then in 1996, something changed when Fox News showed up. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, from your perspective, just how and why and basically, what the fuck is up with Fox? (laughs) How do they do what they do that differs from everyone else, everyone subscribes to the fact that what we had up until Fox came along was the news. And then Fox comes along and changes everything. And like like you go out and you report a story, like you see things, you write it down, you say, this is what I saw. This is what happened. Right. Why is Fox so different? Oh, that's such a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I just, it baffles me. It baffles me. I think in general, the way technology has changed, right. Has opened up the world to so many different more different portals to get your information and so i mean sure okay when you go back to 96 and fox news i mean they saw this untapped opportunity at night at least right because during the daytime it's daytime news programming it looks similar Mm -hmm. to the other cable networks it's at night that there was this opportunity to tap into a certain audience and a certain demographic, right? And it was wildly successful. And then you saw, obviously, the counterexample where, okay, this niche is taken. Let's take the other niche. And so you saw MSNBC and later later CNN, I mean, get into that whole talk, again, using that word space, right? <laughs> the talk um, space. So as technology has progressed and people have different portals to get information, you saw the the web and then you saw Facebook and everything and information is disseminated, not just with news organizations, but then social media platforms and things like that. People have so many more ways to get their information. And then it's this amazing democratization because it's not just three people or your major newspaper telling, giving you the news, Mm -hmm. but there's so many different avenues and so many different people giving you the news, people who don't necessarily have that one look, right? People who might look more like me. On some level, it has been wonderful because there's this democratization of news going on, right? It is, it's not monolithic anymore, but mm-hmm. on the other, people then travel to and gravitate to 
the people who are going to give them the information that supports their own beliefs, right? And so there's then, a lot of that in social media. There's you so much of that. So there's this balkanization the that's happening. Okay. Yeah. I guess I want to know more about what happens when they're producing the newscast. You turn on all the networks and you turn on CNN and MSNBC and you get basically the news of the day and then you turn on Fox and there's this whole like other way of looking at the world that seems a little bit, there's something a little bit wrong with it. You know, like you guys are not seeing what everybody else is seeing. (laughs) But they're so popular because they're ratings. Well, they are popular. Yeah. But how did they become so popular? Because for the longest time, you've got people that like you and I sitting and watching the news our whole lives. Like, that's what happened. You talked about Walter Cronkite. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time when he ended the newscast. And that's the way it is. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, yep, that's the way it is. And, of course, during all of those years leading up to pre-Fox, you had healthy skepticism. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would give the media issue. Oh, they they tilt everything to the left. They're left-leaning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, you've got this network that comes along that is – in my mind, talking directly to those people mm-hmm. and saying, let's light a fire unto them and then let's see what happens. I don't think what happened was a good thing. Yeah. And do you think at least the impression that, as you mentioned, people had of the media being left leaning, that Fox saw that opportunity? OK, there's right. there's another voice. There's a there's another voice here that isn't being yeah. served, yeah, exactly. being stroked. And what do you think of that? I feel that that's really valid. That's a really valid way of looking at it. And I think also there's some other deep, dark things behind it that are all about, let's, let's try and stoke something up here for a certain segment of the population. I, I, you could just go down a wormhole, like trying to study. And I'm sure there are books about it, you yeah. know, about Rupert Murdoch and all of his motivations for starting Fox News. I just really wonder about all of that stuff. We had it the same way for so long. And then all of a sudden this one thing comes along and 30 years later, Donald Trump is elected president. (laughs) Makes me need a drink. (laughs) And it's a good thing we have wine. wine. We have wine. (laughs) Did you get the second wine in your glass yet? This is still the Pinot. Okay. It's so good though. You know what? I can taste the woodsiness. Right? Yeah, the earth. I really like, I love Bordeaux. I love Old World. So I love okay. earthy. This has okay. some nice earth to it. The reason mm-hmm. they call this wine dry farmed is because that 31 acre vineyard that we use exclusively to make the wines at Nicholson Ranch, most of it is dry farmed. Mm-hmm. Which And this is the dirty little secret of wine grape growing. If you're growing world class grapes to make amazing wine, and these are not cheap, you don't really water them mm-hmm. because the vines. If, if you water them, the root system will just stay up toward the surface of the dirt and be like, where's our water? Where's our water? But if you don't, they're like, where's the water? And eventually they're going to be like, well, there must be water down below us somewhere in the dirt. Mm-hmm. So the root systems grow and grow and grow. And what you want is this root system that grows massively downward. And that pulls up water from the depths. Think Ooh. about the dirtiest water, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> the earthy flavors. <laughs> And the grapes don't get as big. So the grapes are smaller, which means concentration of flavor. Mm -hmm. So if you sip this now and think of that concentration of flavor, Mm -hmm. you're getting a lot of flavor in this wine. It's it's actually quite light. It's a Pinot because Pinots are fairly light. But for a Pinot, this one has some really amazing concentration. The mill is just explosive. The mid-palate? Yes. It's so intense and so good. 
I'm glad you like it. Yeah, it's just a, a, I've moved on to the next wine. Oh, wow. <laughs> I need to drink quick. You more, do. You I need, need to, to suck it down. Come on. You live down here in San Jose, which is the South Bay. Mm-hmm. I live in Marin County, adjacent oh, so to Sonoma there. County. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. That's the North Bay. And between us, it's about a 90-minute car ride. Yeah. And I get down here and I'm like, man, there's a lot of people and a lot of highways. And I was just bouncing around from highway to highway to highway <laughs> to get here. Interesting. I never thought about it in that way. Oh, it's amazing. Like in Marin, there's one highway. You drive through Marin, it's 101. It's, it's just so it's beautiful it. there. Well, I what I what what's more noticeable to me is it's just so lush, big hills and it's lots of greenery and tall trees and here it's just it's drier it's more it feels a little bit more barren there's definitely i mean there's just there are a lot of people here it's it has exploded here housing Mm -hmm. here is it's it's so congested it's there's such a shortage i mean there's a shortage everywhere in the bay area but it's particularly pronounced here so when i knew i was going to be driving down here i looked on the map and saw that there was a total wine store yeah They're, they aren't everywhere There's, really there is not one in marin there's not one in sonoma i think the closest one to me is like in pleasant hill or something so i knew i was coming down here and total wine is this huge store full of wine and it's a thousand times better than bevmo mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've slagged on bevmo yeah. on this podcast a few times for their wine selection because mm-hmm. there's a bevmo right across the highway from where i live mm-hmm. and i go there for liquor because they have all the liquor oh. and I love it because <laughs> I drink everything. But I knew I was coming down here. So I thought, I'm going to make a little extra time and go to the Total Wine. Um, I, so I brought this from home, nice. the Nicholson Ranch yeah. Wine. And then I went, I thought, I'm just going to go to Total Wine and shop around. So I, I nice. walked around Total Wine for a half an hour trying to find a suitable bottle to share on the podcast with Aditi. Nice. You know, there was a lot of cheap wine, a lot of uh, the big labels, just crap, 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 crap. And then I, I got into the red blends aisle and I thought, okay, this is going to be a lot of weird stuff. And I found, mm-hmm. I found a weird wine <laughs> to share. The wine that we're going to sip now, okay. and I'm going to pour a little bit for you. I've been warned that it's weird. It's called Lion Tamer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what it says on the back of the bottle. This is, it just says Napa Valley red blend on the front. 2018, so it's mm-hmm. young. Lion Tamer is our winemaker's nickname for Malbec. Because ah. he uses this variety to tame powerful tannins. <laughs> this red blend brings all the intensity of Napa Valley fruit and with Malbec at the core of the blend produces a lush wine that presents juicy black fruit notes and finishes with a velvety texture. Now, the blend. This is where it's weird. Mm-hmm. Malbec typically blended into Cabernet, mm-hmm. Merlot, the other Bordeaux varietals, right? Sure. This is 47% Malbec, and the next in the blend is 24% Zinfandel. Oh, wow. Out of left field. Like, wow. And then kind of a a relative and and found a lot of times with Zinfandel is Petite Syrah. Mm -hmm. And that's next, 19%. But then we go back to the Bordeaux family, 8% Cabernet. There it is. What are they doing? Wow. What are they doing? And then we get a little bit of Petite Verdot, 1%, Mm -hmm. which is like, why bother? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then 1% Carignan, which is another one of those grapes that is not in too many wines. So that's the blend. Mostly Malbec and Zin mm. with a good splash of Petite Syrah, a little bit of Cab. That so you've petite, never had this? No, I've never had it. I'm oh. tasting it for the first time. That Petite Verdot gives it this really dark color, I think. Yeah. Because it's almost it is black. So, it is. It's inky. It's thick. It's swirling nice right. in these Riedel glasses. Riedel. <laughs> the Riedel wine wings. It just smells purple. 
It's uh, sometimes you smell a wine and it's like that just smells purple. You smell the color, right? It smells good though. Yeah, there's like a little bit of an herbaceousness to it. Blueberries, yeah, 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 for sure. Mm, it's really good. It's very fruity. It's. Though. I was gonna say it's very fruity. I am not again like I like earthier. Right. My husband would love this. Okay. Well, he's, he's here. You can yeah. pour him a glass. <laughs> Take He'll it, love it. Take it upstairs. It's very jammy, right? It's jammy. Yeah. It's not too tannic. They really it, did tame the tannins. They tamed the tannins mm-hmm. because Malbec is typically, like you said, blueberry. Malbec mm-hmm. will give you a lot of blueberries. That must be uh, a delivery. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who's here? So tell me what sort of wines you like to drink. When did wine become a thing for you? Do you remember what wine it was that turned you on to oh, being serious about that wine? That was a great question. I mean... I don't know if I would consider myself serious. I just know I like what I like, right? Obviously, I grew up in California. I think I came up with my parents a little bit. My parents actually, maybe it was 2007. My parents and I, this was back before, no kids, no husband. I was single. And my parents and I, we visited Napa and we went to different wineries. And my brother's now wife, she was his girlfriend at the time. Her family owns a winery in Napa called Arrow and Branch. So I'll put a little plug in for them. They're amazing. Arrow and Branch. Bran- Arrow yes. and Branch. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they have amazing wines. Their reds are just phenomenal. They have a great Sauv as well, Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. So we came up to Napa and we did a trip. My brother had recommended the wineries because he knew something about wine and he knows a lot about wine now, but he recommended some wineries for us to go to. And I think that's when I became really serious about wine. And I don't know if it was one singular event in tandem with that. I also had some really good friends in Philadelphia who were very much into wine and they would host these fabulous dinner parties and really spend a lot on the wine. And she loved French wine. So she introduced me to Bordeaux. And I think I really there fell in love with old world mm-hmm. wines, specifically Bordeaux. It's hard to get a good Bordeaux out or just any Bordeaux on any menu out here. But well, unless you want to pay a lot of money, unless you want to pay you go out to dinner. <laughs> That's like, true. If you start looking yeah. at the first gross or even the second gross Bordeaux in a nice restaurant, you're talking about a $500 bottle. And we certainly don't go there. And we, we actually, when we go out to dinner, we tend to do a lot of glasses so that we can explore and yeah, have discovery. Try a bunch of things. Yeah, it's it's always so much fun to do that. Who's someone you would love to share a glass of wine and conversation with besides me, of course? <laughs> Living or dead? Uh, Diane Sawyer. Okay. <laughs> no, of course. Revisit. She's still no. alive. Good, good. You got a chance. Yes. Anybody else? Ted Koppel. Yeah, of course. You got to meet Koppel. I know. Come on. Oh. He's the one. <laughs> He's your ride or die. You know, in about a few hours, I'll come up with a perfect answer. I just don't have it. But no, those two would definitely rank very highly. You told me in our emails before today, you took piano lessons as a kid in Philly. And then when you worked there in the news, was that NBC? So when I grew up in in Irvine, yes, I took piano lessons from age seven to seven, you know, until I went to college. Okay. And then, yes, I actually, as an adult, when I was living in Philadelphia, revisited piano lessons. Oh, it wasn't the same teacher. Exactly. It was not the same oh, teacher. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I thought... In Philly, the teacher was my age. I got <laughs> it. I got it mixed up. I thought you were a kid in Philly and you took piano lessons. And then when you went back and you were on TV there, you took lessons from the same woman. That would be kind of crazy, huh? No. That would be a great story. It'd, it'd be, be a better, great It'd story. be a better story. It'd be a much better story. Let's, than let's say one. that's what yeah, happened. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> when we write the movie, the screenplay... <laughs> 
That's what happened. Sure. But then that teacher performs, Howie, performs the, the theme song for your well, podcast? So that teacher, Howie Gordon in Philadelphia... I actually ended up, we were... We were Sorry, developing. I made Howie a woman for the screenplay. <laughs> okay. I did have a, a, a female okay. piano teacher growing up, but Howie Gordon was my piano teacher in Philadelphia. I reached back out to him to actually just pick his brain about podcast music. I'm doing this. And I know he was just a music geek. And he was. He, what's great about him is that he is really into sound design. So he it's about matching content to music and what mu- music would match that content. And he's brilliant at that. He said, you know what? If you're looking for someone, I'd love to throw my hat in the ring. I said, oh my goodness, I can get you. That's great. And so he came up with our theme music, which is at the beginning and the very end, but there's also certain parts of our podcast. For instance, we needed someone, something for lightning round and we needed transitions. For, exactly. The transitions are really important and music in itself is so important in terms of the, just the pacing, engaging the audience mm-hmm. and all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he created our lightning round music as well as our guest intro music, which is something that I write every week. And I really enjoy that part of it. And he really, got that like he just he got it right he tapped into the exact right pitch perfect the exact right kind of tone that we were going for for each of those elements that's awesome yeah i don't think people realize when you listen to something that is not visual mm-hmm. you're in the car you're yeah. in the kitchen doing dishes after dinner you yeah. listen to a podcast and it sounds really great yeah. there's a lot of elements that are being meticulously placed there just like my podcast sure it starts out with a little montage, mm-hmm. music underneath it, and then there's this jazzy piano thing that I started with. I love the piano, Mike. Thank you. It's great. I didn't play it. I didn't write it. You didn't need to. It was. <laughs> it's perfect. Those elements make such a difference, yeah. right? And I mean, you've worked in radio for so many years. I was in broadcasting. Things like even the mics, like I noticed that you use these Shure mics, and oh wow, these. This are, is these that's are. a Shure, and this is an. AKG mic. Oh, I've heard of those too. Yeah. And then when I'm at home and I'm sitting at my mm-hmm. dining room table, I actually have the grandpa AKG mic, a really, oh, a really wow. big mic that sits on the table. But nonetheless, the mic is so important on a podcast for all of our guests. I FedEx, I have FedEx so many mics to people and then with the return label and everything. Oh, that's cool. because, that's a good idea. Yeah, because otherwise the quality of the host is up here and mm-hmm. then the guests, you oh, know, it's just, you don't want it to be sounding like they're talking on their speakerphone or when something. When I tune into a podcast and they're doing a remote interview mm-hmm. on Zoom and the guest mm-hmm. is sitting at their dining room table, so already it's echoey, and then they're talking into their laptop microphone from three oh, feet away. It's brutal. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. And then you have to realize that you have a microphone. You got to get close to it. Yeah. I'm close to this microphone, but if I go far from the and say, hey, Aditi, how's it going? It really... <laughs> so I get close to the yeah. microphone. Back to the whole piano thing, though. Mm-hmm. You must be pretty accomplished by now. Well, I peaked at a certain point. I think I peaked when, as an adult, I played Claire de Lune. And I actually played it at a recital. I love Claire de Lune. It's so beautiful. Yes, it's... I can play that a little bit. Oh, that's... I play a little bit. I play... I've never taken lessons. That's more than a little bit. Playing anything... Any any part of Claire de Lune is not easy. My main instrument is my voice. I see. I mean, it it absolutely is. You have an amazing voice. And I really miss karaoke. A great voice for radio and karaoke. I really miss karaoke. <laughs> 
Claire de Lune. You Claire peaked. de Lune. I peaked. Oh, I also did a, did another you do a recital. recital or you were... It's funny because Howie made me do these recitals. So I went to this piano school. He was teaching at a piano school okay. back then. And he made me do the recitals, even though I was the only adult in there. He could never get his adult students to but do it. But you were Aditi Roy from NBC Philadelphia. Well, it's <laughs> funny because you have your anonymity when you are at... Even though you're at the network when you're a reporter... It's not like you go on the street and people recognize you. But yes, in Philadelphia, you definitely feel hey, really connected. That's a New York accent. Don't know. It's it's that's not Philly. Sorry. In Philadelphia, it was funny because at the Claire de Lune recital, the local radio station, someone came out and actually taped it and, and they did a little thing on it on the morning. Talk. And I was really excited because I used to listen to that morning talk show. I also did a recital with so my favorite Christmas music is the Vince Guaraldi, the Peanuts mm-hmm. Christmas yeah. album, right? Yeah. Every Christmas comes along, the holiday season comes, and I play that for my daughters. So I play Christmas Time is Here okay. on the piano, and it was a duet with a 14-year-old kid who's, by the way, some some really overachiever, Often doctor, MD-PhD okay. kind of person sure. right now. But he was lovely. And so I, we had this duet. I did the Christmas Time is Here at this recital. It went really well, but... I think that's that's definitely between that and Claire de Lune, that's when I peaked. And I got really busy because I went back to get my MBA and everything. So I left the piano lessons. But I always maintained, and I still do, that I will return to it because I, I really love it. And it's it's something that is very decompressing and almost meditative for me. I saw the piano upstairs. Yeah, like, okay, we have a little... The, there's the piano. Yeah. Maybe we can get Aditi to play. Unfortunately, I couldn't play anything. <laughs> I don't even have my music. My daughter, my older daughter, who's almost eight, plays and takes lessons. And she actually loves all things music. So my thought was always that, oh, when my kids take piano lessons, I'll also take it and we can practice together. But it doesn't work like that because it's... Even if I sit down and noodle around at the piano, that minute, of course, she decides that she wants to practice and takes over. So maybe in a few years, in 10 years, I'll resume it. I will resume the lessons. All right. I think that if you can learn some great American songbook standards. Like uh, what? Moon River? No, not I, Moon I did River, play that. Like New York, New York. New York, New York. Oh. If you learn New York, New York, or you learn. Uh, the Way You Look Tonight. The Way, oh, The Way You Look Tonight. That's, I mean, you every learn, wedding. If you learn that. I'll come sing. Oh, cool. And we can we'll, do a duet. We'll do a duet, yeah. You can be my accompanist. Awesome. <laughs> I would love that. And I'll start crooning again, <laughs> as I meant to. Do you sing? I do. Oh, I can see. I mean, you have a fantastic That's why I say voice. I miss karaoke. Okay, so what are your favorite songs to sing? I mix it up. When I go out on karaoke night, it can be almost anything. It can be a U2 song. Mm-hmm. I love one. Oh, yeah. It could be a song from Les Mis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love to sing Bring Him Home. Oh. I like Radiohead, the song Creep. Of course. It's good. There's some real good belting at the end of that. Yeah. But I like to mix it up. What about like Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Dutt, that whole genre? Yeah, I don't. I the don't grunge? Do, what was it? Grunge? I don't do too much like grungy kind of stuff. I do lean towards the Great American Songbook, which is, you know, all the stuff you've heard Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, yeah. Matt King Cole sing forever. Oh. All those songs. I would like to one day like, work with a piano player and come up with a cabaret show. Oh, cool. You know, Mike and Aditi, <laughs> live at Feinstein's in San Francisco. Fun. Kind of you know, one day. One day. One day. You'll get back to the piano. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for hanging out. This has been so much fun. Thanks for sipping wine with me. Oh, anytime. <laughs> really had to twist my arm for that. I know, right? He shows up at my house. He brings two nice wines, these <laughs> fancy glasses. <laughs> 
All right, I'm going to do the closing credits now. Ready? All right. The Tall Mike Wine Podcast was conceived and is written, produced, edited, and maintained by yours truly. It's recorded on a program called Audacity, and I use Shure and AKG microphones. What do you think of my podcast? Let me know. Drop me an email with comments, questions, suggestions, or to request your very own set of Tall Mike Wine podcast coasters, tallmikewine at gmail.com. Don't forget ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you still have time on your hands, check out my Instagram. Follow me at Tall Mike Wine to see pictures of Aditi and me and these funky wine glasses. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for lunch, Aditi. Anytime. Thanks for wine. Best of luck with Full Stack Foods Podcast. Thank you. That's episode 26. I'm Mike Stone. Cheers. Cheers.